Let's go to John chapter one. All right, if you got a Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible or if you wanna follow along another way, you can always go to cpwp.life, click on message notes. It's the second card that you'll see. I wanna go ahead and read this. This particular text, I mean, the book of John is fantastic, but even scholars, commentators, and things on verse 14 alone, it's just this loaded statement, has so many implications um, in many ways. It's just this beautiful summation of like the storyline of the Bible. All right, so I've been excited to get into this text. So we'll be in verses 14 to 18. So let me go ahead and read these verses and then we'll make our way back through this text and sort of unpack what's the implication for your life and my life. It says this, beginning in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And that's John's big objective throughout this particular book, is that we would get this clearer picture that he is revealing to us Jesus, the God-man Jesus. And so as he's been unpacking it for us in chapter one, he's laying out these themes of like the word, all right? And the word is referred to as, it's referencing Jesus, that he's the one who created everything, that he's fully divine. And now John begins to tell us, all right, not only is he fully divine, but he's also taken on flesh and blood, which doesn't mean that he left his divinity, but rather in this mystery of the incarnation, he is both God and he's fully man. All right, so that's what we're gonna explore together this morning. And it all starts with verse 14. We'll spend a little bit more time in this particular verse, dealing with the fact that God has taken up residence, that God came to dwell with us is what the scriptures tell us. And it's getting at this theme that you and I were created for the presence of God. We're created to need the presence of other people certainly as well. Like we have felt that, haven't we, over the last 12 months as things got interrupted, disrupted, uh, when there were plans that had to shift and change and even being able to see people, maybe it was like, all right, well, I'm seeing you like through a window or you're doing like a, you know, people are having birthday celebrations or baby showers and they've got friends driving by in cars to wave. There's all these creative ways to try and figure out how to be safe and all of it. And it's speaking to though this deeper need, like even with a pandemic, we're trying to figure out like, how do we get in the presence of other people? Like we need community. And beyond that, at a whole other level, we've been created for the presence of God. In fact, the picture at the beginning of the scriptures and what's what John has been doing is really lots of references. Like he starts his book out the same way the book of Genesis started out. As we look at the creation account, what we see is man and woman, you've got Adam and Eve, and they're in the presence of God. And sadly, because of sin, they're actually expelled. They're kicked out of the garden. God has to, to set this guardian there so that they wouldn't try and enter back in. I mean, there's this very real sense, this weightiness of something's been fractured, something's been torn apart. What was one time just this, this access that we had to God has been taken away. 
And then that's disrupted our relationship with one another, with our creation, and everything is sort of unraveled from that place. Now, if the Bible ended at Genesis 3, it would be a very depressing story. It's like, oh, things were amazing, then things went bad, it's explained why things are bad, and then you die and it's over. Like, that's all that we would have, but thankfully God, even in Genesis 3, says, just wait. It's gonna take a while, but I've got a plan to put this whole thing back together. I'm going to send one who will one day crush the head of the serpent. He'll deal with Satan, sin, and death forever. One is going to come who's gonna provide a way that you and I can get back into the presence of God. And so as much as we long for a pandemic to go away so that we can be in the presence of one another at a much deeper level, like we are longing for, people have always been longing for this problem of sin to go away so that we could actually once again have access to God. We were made for the presence of God. And so it's in this context that John says, I need you to know the word that is Jesus, it tells us here in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh. And the language that John writes with here, it's this word sarks that he's, that he's using. It's this idea of just true humanity. It's flesh and blood with all of its propensity for just like hurt and pain and just the reality of life. And so I wanna put before you, there's numerous things we could talk about, but theologians call this the incarnation. And there's some very practical then implications of the fact that the word became flesh. And so I'll just highlight three of these. Again, they're at the message notes at cpwp.life. But in this first thing that we see with the word becoming flesh, it's that God himself is identifying with you. So there are things that you've dealt with in the past week. There's things you've dealt with in the past month. There are things you're gonna deal with today in the week ahead. There's things that you've been dealing with for as long as you can actually remember. Things that maybe you, you moved and you're in a different relationship or you bought this new home or you went on this trip or you got this new job or you did certain things and they can all be really good things. But in that, like as we, as we go along and we're, we're trying to like, you know, we're enjoying the things that, that God has given to us, the reality is that there's still hurt and there's pain and there's confusion. We're wondering like, does, does God relate to me? Like how do I know that God actually cares? We have to look no further than verse 14 of John chapter one. He's just telling us God himself, he identifies with you as his people, that the word became flesh. I don't know if you are aware of this, those of you that are maybe more musically inclined, I have no musical ability, so I'll trust those that tell me that these things are true because I've seen videos on YouTube about this and therefore it must be true, right? All right, so um, that there's this thing called sympathetic resonance. And so if you were to take two of these devices, these are tuning forks, right? And you were to take one and you were to strike it, it would begin, this, there'd be this frequency, there'd be this noise that you would hear. Now, if you were then, after a moment, to sort of pinch the sides of that tuning fork, the one in one hand, it would stop. But what was fascinating is that the other one that was not struck would continue to make the same noise. It would continue to give this resonance. It would continue to have this sound at the same frequency. Now, what's really interesting, it's like, hey, the one wasn't struck. It's this idea of this sympathetic resonance. What was happening to one begins to happen with another. And so in his commentary on this book, Kent Hughes speaks of this reality and it's like, this is just maybe a small way to think about Jesus taking on flesh. That what you experience 
when there's hurt and there's pain or even when there's times of celebration and there's joy, like what you experience is experienced by Jesus himself. That there's this sympathetic resonance that God has moved in. He has come to dwell with you and with me. He is not distant. He's not just up there in the heavens just twiddling his thumbs or just looking down like I can't believe they're messing up again. His disposition towards you, because of verse 14 tells us, he moved in. Like the things that you experience, Jesus experiences. That he knows pain, he knows betrayal, he knows sorrow, he knows all of those things. At the most practical level, I mean, he knows what it was like to learn to walk. He may not, you may not remember those days in your life, but you had to go through that phase. You learned to talk. Jesus had the same thing happen to him. That Jesus was hungry and he cried out for his mother to come and to feed him. He knew all of those things. Like, we need to make sure we're comprehending this as much as we can. There's not that this life that Jesus lived that was somehow different. Like, well, his flesh and blood wasn't really flesh and blood. No, no. He lived the human life. Sympathetic resonance. Maybe at a much more just sort of pop culture level, there's these movies that tend to repeat. They're basically the same storyline, and if something happens where, all right, there's oftentimes maybe there's a, there's a movie that came out in the late 80s. I think it was 11 when it came out. It was called like Father Like Son, all right? And then not long after that, there's another movie that came out, this time with a mother and daughter called Freaky Friday. Has anybody ever seen this one? All right, what's the big idea, right? You've got this mother, this daughter, or you've got a father and a son and these other movies that some sort of magical spell happens, right? And suddenly their, their identities get switched. So yes, the mother still looks like the mother, but the, the daughter is actually like inhabiting her body now, all right, has her mind. Um, and then it's flipped for the, the daughter. And so what do they begin to do? For one, there's comical and there's frustrating and all of that, but there's this sense of identification like, oh, this is what it looks like to walk in your shoes. And so it's the most basic kind of simple level that we make movies about at a much more profound level. John 1, verse 14 is saying, God identifies, God has moved in, he's moved in, he's literally walked in your shoes. This is why the writer of Hebrews could say in Hebrews 4, verse 14, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So there is a major difference. He's tempted like we are, but he did not sin. But just know this, the full range of the human experience, God experienced it himself. But Jesus in the flesh, the God-man experienced it. One of the things I think is helpful, one of the best passages I think to, to look at, to get at these ideas is when Paul writes a letter to a group of people, it's the Philippian church, all right? And so I wanna do this for a moment as we look at some of these implications. It's just look at some verses out of Philippians chapter two and so just overlay it on top of John chapter one, particularly verse 14. Like I think it helps to expound and sort of get at, oh, this is what was happening. And so in Philippians chapter two, Paul is calling a group of people saying, hey, Live your life, model it after, see what Jesus did for you, like follow his example that he's given. Well, okay, well, how did Jesus live? And then Paul begins to describe it. And so it picks up here in verse six of chapter two, who, it's referencing Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, or some translations will say, to grasp, to hold on to. 
he had it, it was his, he is God, and yet he's like, hey, I'm going to leave all the privilege that that affords me. I'm going to leave and enter into the human experience. Now, he doesn't cease to be God, but he enters in. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. It's Paul's way of trying to communicate to us. Jesus had everything. Like, I don't even know how, I've been thinking about this over the past few days, like, how could I even get this through, not, forget about it, through your head for a moment, like my own, like, how, how would this possibly be comprehended? And so we think about, like, because we look at this world and we know it's painful and broken, and yet there, there's some comforts that we have. There's some things that we're, we're enjoying. And obviously when those things get taken away, like, it's, we, we realize, oh my goodness, like, we, thankfully, we didn't endure what the state of Texas did in this past week. But obviously, friends and family that live in that state, and I'm seeing the things that they're, that they're posting. I mean, things that you wouldn't have taken, you wouldn't probably have thought twice about. Suddenly, it's like, oh my goodness, to have the, those things, it creates this level of appreciation. But by and large, we look at this world, and there's a level of comfort. That's not the picture, though, that we should have in our mind of like, oh, it's kind of cool that God came down and dwelt with, with us. Like, it's pretty nice here. It's like, no, no, no. I mean, this would be like leaving the most luxurious, like palace-like home. Like you picture wherever you'd like to live, where you have everything, and then being given a prison cell, right? No one would be like, oh, well, this is kind of cool for a while. No, no, no. Like, I don't want that experience. And that just scratches the surface. I mean, what Jesus had, this perfect communion, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, lacking nothing, comes as a baby, raised in a home where there was lots of whispers around town of like, oh, Mary, do, do, you know, I, did, I heard Joseph wasn't the dad, right? Like, I mean, so like all of these things that would have been happening, living in relative obscurity, we're gonna see later on in chapter one, ends up from this town called Nazareth, which wasn't the place to be, that wasn't the zip code you wanted to be in, all right? That's why some will exclaim like, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's Jesus's hometown. A life of obscurity, grows up in a, this blue collar home, his dad's swinging a hammer, he's learning that trade, like, right? Blisters on his hands, frustration, probably made a wrong cut from time to time, probably didn't say words that I would say when he did that, I mean, all that, right? Like, this is his world, he enters in. And then it tells us in this just loaded phrase that John uses, it says he dwelt among us. I told you last week that throughout this chapter, John is introducing a lot of Genesis language, like how the whole thing began, all right, that there's this new creation. And then he very quickly, with this little phrase, moves into Exodus language. And if you know the story of the Bible, all right, maybe this is new to you, that God's people were living as slaves. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were longing to get free. They were longing to get to the promised land. And God rescues them through the hand of Moses, he delivers them. They cross the Red Sea. God crushes the Egyptian army. Like, and then they're out, all right? And as they travel to the promised land, all right, God takes up residence. He can, tells them to construct a tabernacle, all right, that this giant tent, all right, and that they would set up camp, and then the presence of God would come to dwell there and to fill that tabernacle, to fill a particular room there. God was with his people. And so this exact phrase, when it says, and dwelt among us, is literally saying, God came, the word came in the flesh and tabernacled 
among us. That there was a tent that was set up in the person and work of Jesus in this world. And so we hear that, and we're like, oh, that's cool that he came to dwell with us. But what would have been going on for an original audience would have been like, oh my goodness, this is new Exodus language. God who delivered his people from slavery, is he doing it again? Is this what's happening? Is this the story that John's trying to tell us? Like all the lights would have been going on in their dashboard, right? And it is. He's saying we're made for the presence of God and the way that the presence of God was contained in this this tabernacle came down to dwell. Now the tabernacle is no longer just this tent or as Jesus will talk about in the book of John, what became from the tabernacle, it went to the temple and then Jesus, what does he do? I'm the temple. I'm the presence of God. I am the presence of God in flesh and blood and I'm moving among people and I'm talking among you and I'm ministering to you. And so this is just a loaded, loaded phrase. And it all is speaking of salvation. It's speaking of the fact that God is bringing about this exodus. He's bringing about deliverance because we are enslaved to sin. So God's people a couple thousand years ago, they're not slaves in Egypt. Many ways they're enslaved by the Roman Empire. And most of them have on their mind, like God's gonna deliver us from that. And God is like, no, no, no. I have something so much better. Empires will come and go but I'm here to deliver you from your enslavement to sin, your bondage to sin. And so again, let's go back to Philippians. Chapter two kind of overlaid on this in verses seven, this back part of verse seven into verse eight. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Do you wanna know the implications of this incarnation? It's that God identifies with you He's with you in your pain, your suffering, and your hurting. And he doesn't just leave you there. It's more than just identify. It's more than just like, I know how you feel. He can actually honestly say that. But then he says, I'm actually gonna do something about it. In most times, like I might have an interaction with one of you and maybe there's some overlap in our stories and I can say, I know how you feel and that there can be some empathy there and there can be like, oh, here's somebody that kind of gets it. Like those are some good moments just between human to human. But in most cases, I'm not gonna be able to say, and I can deliver you from that situation. But the God-man, Jesus, can. He brings about salvation the only way it was gonna be possible. The only way we're gonna get to the presence of God, what we were created for, is if the very presence of ourselves becomes cut off from his relationship with God the Father. To cry out on a Roman cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like this is what is happening. The temple is being destroyed. What did Jesus say? Give me three days, I'll rebuild it. People had no idea what he was speaking about. We're gonna get to that later on in the book of John. But it's Jesus' way of saying there's resurrection that's coming and this is going to deliver my people from their sins. I read this old quote from St. Augustine during our Advent series and I, as I was studying this week, I was like, I don't know, I mean, we heard it a few weeks ago, but I, it resonated again with me, and if you're like, this isn't new material, I know it's not, it's St. Augustine, it's been around for a long time, and I'm gonna share it again, okay? Um, he says this, this sort of poetry that he puts together, talking about the incarnation. I mean, we're really, we're talking some Christmas themes here, all right, so Merry Christmas again here in February, all right? Says this, man's maker was made man. That's what we looked at last week at the beginning of John chapter one, that he, the ruler of the stars, Think about this for a moment. The ruler of the stars, the one who made everything, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread 
might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey. All things that we see in the book of John about who Jesus is. That the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. The strength, that strength might actually grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. I mean, this is the story of the incarnation. This is what is meant here in John chapter one, verse 14, that Jesus identifies with you and your story and your plight, and then he does something about it, and he brings deliverance, and it's all for the goal of ultimately being in the presence of God to worship. And so where John goes with this, then at the end of verse 14, he says, we've observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We'll look at grace and truth here in just a moment. But we have seen his glory. What is this speaking of? This is worship. To be in the presence of God, to glory in who Jesus is, to glory in his glory. And as we'll look at in a couple of minutes, If it wasn't for Jesus dying in our place, the glory of God would obliterate us. We literally couldn't stand it. We could not be in the presence of God. We would absolutely just disintegrate. Like sinful people like you and me cannot stand in the presence of the holy unless God himself made a way, unless God himself died for us and gave us his holiness, his righteousness. So now when we stand before the Father, he doesn't see you and me and all our jacked upness. He sees Jesus. And so what does it lead to? It's adoration. It's worship. We have seen his glory. This is what we're created for. Now, it's imperfect right now. What we're doing here on a Sunday morning, whether in person or online, like it's just this foretaste of what's to come when we get to glory in the presence of God. And so we just get little glimpses, little snapshots right now. But you know those moments when you're like, hey, everything seems to fade and all of the, the pain and the sorrow and all that, and you're just kind of caught up in this moment of like, God, I'm not saying my life is perfect. I know there's a lot of brokenness, not just out there in the world, but in here as well but you're just caught up in this moment of worship, like that's just this tiny fractional sort of moment of what's coming for us. Jesus has made a way. And so in Philippians chapter two, verse nine to 11, for this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, what would happen? Every knee will bow. This is adoration, this is worship in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's gonna be this glorious sound as we, the nations gather and every ethnicity is represented, every socioeconomic class, every distinction that we make here that sometimes can divide, we're unified through the personal work of Jesus and we're all bent on praising him. This is what you've been created for. This is what I've been created for. John chapter one, verse 14. More could be said, we don't have time for it, but just what a beautiful verse. Eugene Peterson in his translation of the scriptures, it's kind of paraphrased, it's called the message. The language he uses in John chapter one, verse 14, God moved into the neighborhood. Think about that. Hey, how are the new neighbors? It's God, right? Whoa, but that's incredible. God moved into the neighborhood. God moved close to you. He's not distant, he's not far off, he's not indifferent to your pain, he doesn't somehow just say, you know, quit bothering me with those things that you keep praying about, like, come on, can you get over that? No, no, he cares deeply. 
and he's with you, and he's with me. Now, we'll spend a little bit less time, I think, on the remaining here, although there's amazing things in here, but just real quickly, verse 15 speaks of John the Baptist here, it's this reference. We're gonna look at this more closely next week, so we won't spend a ton of time here, but there is a posture that's seen. And so if we're gonna embrace what God has for us, when we run up against God and his holiness and his glory, there's a response that should elicit from you and from me. And I think we see an example of this in verse 15. In parentheses, it says, John testified, this is John the Baptist, concerning him, that is Jesus, and exclaimed, hey, this was the one. He's like, guys, I spoke of this. This is the one, he says, that I said, all right, the one coming after me actually ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. It's like, whoa, like what what, what does he mean by that? Because John, we know the story from other gospel accounts, is probably at least six, about six months older physically than, than Jesus in terms of which one was born first into this world. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know I might have my birthday six months before Jesus's earthly birthday, but he's way older than me. In fact, you can't even use the, the, the terminology of age or time about him because he's always existed. And so what does John understand? He understands that he's got a role to play, but he knows that he's not the savior. What would serve most of us well in this upcoming week, if we can just be clear for a moment, is to have the disposition that John does like, I think we would all sleep better. We would all have less anxiety. We would all have less stress if we just realized, I know this will be very basic, but the, the implications are profound. You're not the savior. I'm not the savior. So much of my anxiety and stress and freaking out or getting angry is in those moments like, I want things to change. It might even be good things. And I feel like completely impotent to make any sort of change, to see anything advance because there's a savior complex that I can carry. And my guess is you carry it as well in certain environments, in certain cases. And this is reminding us, like through John's example, hey, there's one savior, it's not you. Why don't you put your head down on the pillow at night and just rest knowing you're not sustaining the power, your power is not sustaining the world making it go around as we looked at last week, it's Jesus. Doesn't mean you don't care, doesn't mean you don't work well. Like John is dialed in, he works, he's testifying, he's bearing witness, but he's doing it with a posture and a disposition of I know that I'm not God. I'm simply here to bear witness to his power. There would be an incredible freedom, I think there'd be a joy, there'd be a restfulness about us individually and as a community if that actually would sink in. And so I think there's this movement where we would say from posture to proclamation because he does bear witness. And so I'm just gonna read this very quickly. Again, you could preach an entire sermon on this, we don't have time for it. But in Isaiah chapter six, here's another man, another prophet who runs up against the glory of God and look what it does to him. Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, it's a vision that he gets, seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe, it filled the temple. We're talking about the presence of God here. Seraphim were standing above him. They had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory, it fills the whole earth. Verse four, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, here's Isaiah's response. When he runs up against the majesty and the wonder and the glory of God, the presence of God, it, un, like, it literally devastates him. He comes completely undone. 
Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. He's like, I know that I'm infected. I've got a sin problem, all right? He's like, I mean, you think about it in this, this day and age that we're living in, right? Like, have you been in any proximity? Have you, have you had any exposure to somebody who sinned? He's like, every single person, including myself, we've all got this disease. And somehow I've just experienced just a little bit of the glory of God. And he's like, I, I think it's gonna kill me. And it says this, then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and he said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. This is what happens because of the incarnation of Jesus. Our sin gets atoned for. We are cleansed. And there's this movement for Isaiah from a cleansing then to this commissioning that happens. Or as we would say it here, like there's this posture that John has and when he understands who he is, it leads him to be free to proclaim the excellencies of King Jesus. And then verse eight, Isaiah's response, I heard the voice, the voice of the Lord asking, hey, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And what's Isaiah's response? Isaiah says, I said, here I am, Lord, send me. If you and I, to the extent that we rightly understand that everything comes from the good and gracious hand of our God, that we're created to worship him for his presence, we're created to tell other people that they too are created for the presence of God, and when we realize that we've been cleansed, when we realize that our sin has been atoned for, when we realize that there's been this new exodus that has taken place, that God is liberating us from our bondage to sin, the response always through the scriptures is, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. I am not the savior. Isaiah's not saying, send me because I'm awesome. He literally has just declared, I've got nothing on my own. But Lord, because of your work in my life, send me. I'm completely surrendered to your will. And that's what we see happening. Now, that posture the only thing that can sustain that, the only thing that's gonna allow us to live as a group of people that are sent on this mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus is when we understand what verses 16 to 18, how it concludes here. This is the prologue, the conclusion to the prologue of the Gospel of John, and it tells us about God's never-ending, always and forever love and grace and mercy, that there's this provision. And so look with me at verses 16 to 18. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Some loaded phrases. Let me just put before you a couple thoughts as we conclude this passage, we conclude the prologue. John writes this, this word, he uses this phrase. He begins to talk in verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. And there's a little footnote that might be in your Bible and it can say, we've all received grace in place of grace. Like normally you'd use that and say like, we've got this in place of this other thing. But the language here is there's grace, and when you think maybe that's exhausted, like when you've gotten to the end of grace for that particular circumstance or situation or season or whatnot, guess what it's replaced with? More grace. 
And when you feel like that that's being used up, guess what follows that? More grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Like it's this never ending stream. Now, here's what's really important is there can be a tendency, particularly depending on maybe kind of church background or upbringing or association, does grace mean forgiveness of sins? Well, of course it does. Yes and amen, always, it certainly does. But it doesn't just limit itself to that. Like we need the forgiveness, we need the atonement, but we also need just God's sustaining grace for every aspect of our life. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus is each and every day being like, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for friendships and for food and just joy. Thank you for this show that I could watch. Thank you for even the suffering and the trials because I understand that you're doing something in those. The idea of grace is unmerited favor and God keeps pouring it out. You don't earn it. You don't have to ask for it perfectly. He just like his disposition toward those of us that are in Christ is just grace upon grace In my own study in this Lent season, I'm going through the book of Jeremiah, and I came upon this passage at the end of, nearing the end of Jeremiah chapter two, in verse 13, it says this, my people, this Old Testament prophet, is speaking the words of God, and God is saying to his people, all right, my people have committed a double evil. So it'd be one thing if God says, you're committing evil, when he's like, hey, there's a double evil, we should probably pay attention. Here's the double evil, and it ties to this grace upon grace. He says, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you see the double evil? God is the one that's this never-ending constant stream of grace and of mercy and of provision, of love and of care, his graciousness. And it's a stream and it literally is flowing. And he's saying, we've walked away from that. And then the double evil In our idiocy, what do we go and do? We dig a cistern, it's not a well, it's not like you dig deep enough that the water starts to come up, I'll get my own water source, no, no, no. A cistern is literally a hole in the ground or a container that collects rainwater. Where's the rainwater come from? It's not something you earn or make happen, it only comes from God, and it just collects it. And yet these folks have gone and said, I don't need the living water, I don't need the water that always flows, I don't need the never-ending grace of God, I'll go and dig my own hole. I mean, look how ridiculous this image is. And even that, the cisterns we dig, when water does happen to find its way in, they're cracked, like it cannot hold it. What is our calling? We should go back to the source, the river of life, the water of life. We're gonna see this in John chapter four. I told you, John one, all the themes throughout the whole book are just kind of like packed in very densely here. And I look at that verse, And I read it this past week, and I thought, that's ridiculous. I can't believe those people. (laughs) And then I realized, well, yeah, that's my story, though. I move away from the grace of God, and then I go try and do things in my own efforts. And John then continues, so grace upon grace. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's going to raise the question we're going to see throughout this book. Maybe this, very practically, well, is the law bad? Is it like, yep. There's the Old Testament, it was full of law and all all this stuff, and now we've got the New Testament, and it's all grace. That's not the way the Bible speaks of it. What we're gonna see is the law was part of God's gift. It was a particular grace at a particular time. God gave the law after after the Exodus, after he had liberated God's people. And he's telling them, here's the best possible way to live. This is what it looks like to serve me, to be surrendered to me. 
but the law could never save. It simply pointed out all the ways that we fall short. It says, here's the standard, and then you try and live that for like five minutes and realize how much you fail and how much I fail. And so it was meant to point us, to drive home this idea, you and I need a savior. And what John 1:14 is saying, that savior showed up in flesh and blood to deal with your sin problem and my sin problem. Go read Galatians chapter three, 23 to 26. It speaks of this. And then it concludes and it says here, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's a reference to an Old Testament phrase of kindness and faithfulness. It's another way of God just communicating to us. My very nature and disposition is kindness that corresponds to grace and a fidelity, a faithfulness, a stick to itness that is about truth. Like there's this stability, there's this anchor of truth of who God is. And when we're connected to him, that's what it speaks of, grace and truth, kindness and faithfulness. I'll read these words to close. It's a reference to a story in the Old Testament. Near the end, it's end of Exodus chapter 33, Moses is like, Lord, I wanna see your glory. You know what God's response to him is? <laughs> yeah, um, you can't handle my glory. I'm gonna literally like put you in this like safe spot with this rock that sticks out so that when my glory passes by, it doesn't kill you instantly, but my glory will pass by. How about that? Moses is like, okay, that sounds good. I don't wanna die, all right? And then the very next chapter reveals these words and these themes, and it's another way of John telling us in this, it's a reference back, God has revealed himself. And it's so much better than being stuck in like with a rock outcropping, trying to hide. Like we get to know the real God through the personal work of Jesus. Exodus 34, the Lord came down in a cloud. The presence of God stood with him there, proclaimed his name, the Lord. So he lets Moses know, hey, it's me, just in case you were wondering. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed as he's stuck in this rock. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's the God we worship. That's the God that John is introducing us to that has taken on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So church, let me pray for us. Let's continue to pray that God would reveal to us more and more clearly who he is. That's what's happening here in verse 18. He's literally saying that Jesus is putting on display, he's showcasing for us like who God is and how we can be in relationship with him. So I'd encourage you, I'm gonna pray for us, but take some time as we sing this next song, as we prepare for communion, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in a time of repentance, to remind you of the grace upon grace. And would you, would you receive that as the gift that it is? And we're gonna rejoice together. And so as we sing this next song, those of you that are here, come forward, get the elements. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come to the table. Please take it back to your seat and we'll participate together after this song. For those of you that are home, you can gather the elements and then I'll call us all together in just a moment. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for your never ending, your constant grace. Jesus, we thank you that because of you, there's this grace upon grace upon grace. And I pray as we sing now and as we spend time just worshiping you. I pray we would see that as your grace toward us. 
As we participate in this meal, would we be reminded of the grace that you've extended, that this is a means of your grace right here, right now, to nourish us, to strengthen us. That God, the breath that we just took, grace. The forgiveness of sins, grace. A community, it's all grace, that everything comes from your good hand. So God, I pray that we would have hearts, we'd have open hands, like a posture of receiving your grace. Lead us in repentance for the ways that we are filled with pride, thinking we're gonna go dig our own cistern, we're gonna go do our own thing. May we repent of that, may we run back to the living water that is you. So God, I pray as we continue in our worship service, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people experience a deep and abiding joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.